players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Brainstorm, Wasteland, Swords to Plowshares, and many more. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live, Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thraben University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to episode 27 of the Eternal Glory podcast, How to Beat Rogue Delver. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Brian Koval and Bryant Cook. How's everyone doing today? Just glorious, Phil. I was so excited to see your face. I've been waiting all day. I know. It's very understandable. I could tell you missed me by your tweets. <laughs> I have also been tweeting relentlessly that I miss Phil. I don't think you tagged me in those ones. No, I oh, subbed okay. That's you. good. As long as I'm still in the conversation. <laughs> All right. Um, as usual, we'll go ahead and start off by thanking our donors, Henrik, once again, uh, supporting the podcast, as well as a new donor this week, uh, or at least as far as I'm aware. Um, Mike Noble, thank you very much to your uh, for your donation. Um, I know. Go ahead. Uh, Mike's donation came with a a quote. He, he says, thank you for all your continued contributions to Legacy and Vintage on your podcast and other social platforms. Ban Rite of Flame, not Arkham's Astrolabe. Good good stuff. I don't know. We, we, yep. Watsy is listening, so good We good probably call. have problems beyond Astrolabe with Legacy right now, but that's for a different episode or a different podcast. Or later in this episode, as it yeah, turns probably. out. Format's fine. Eh. All right, save it, save right. it, boys. We're still in the donations. All right, um, and as always, thank you very much to uh, At Force of Phil, Phil Blackman, for editing this podcast and uh, making all the technical stuff so, so much easier on it, and the donations go to support his great work. All right, Bryant, what's up with your life? Well, I've been watching this awful TV show that I happen to love. Uh, we were cruising around Hulu looking for just something we haven't watched before because we're getting to that point in COVID where new shows aren't being produced anymore. So we're going back and looking at older shows. And I honestly found this show because my coworker had mentioned that it's a show he loves to watch while he's getting high. So uh, The Last Man on Earth, it's honestly just like a bunch of ex-SNL people and they think that they're the last people over and over and then they meet another group or something. Um, but it's four seasons I think my favorite part about it is the show starts in 2015 and it starts off with a prediction that it the start of the show takes place one year after the start of the virus. So that means COVID-19, like they accidentally predicted it, uh, which I thought was kind of awesome. Uh, other than that, I've uh, gotten back to my pizza making. We've made uh, probably two or three more pizzas, but I've been making them on the grill with a pizza stone. And the first mistake I learned, I want to share this because I don't want anyone else to repeat this mistake. You have to grease up the pizza stone because I didn't do that. I was like, yeah, it's got like years worth of like frozen pizza, uh, you know, flavor soaked into the stone. Now, the first one stuck pretty badly. Uh, it didn't burn, but it was like a little too crispy. So on the next one, 
instead of doing like 400 heat, we cooked it at like 225 for like 45 minutes on the grill. It came out perfect. That, that um, so is if patience cook... right there. Yeah. Wait, so so you've been cooking frozen pizzas on a pizza stove? Yeah, well, like you put them in the oven. I don't want to get like pizza crumbs all over my nice oven. Wow, that's like hanging the Mona Lisa in a daycare. <laughs> I'm impressed that you had a pizza stone. That's an object you owned, and you didn't actually make your own pizza. Well, I sent you a photo, Brian, and you're like, oh, wow, that's a nice pizza stone. But I had also said I... Sorry, there's like a beeping. That uh, I've only like been eating frozen pizzas up until this point, so... Math adds yeah, up. Yeah, uh, I, I was impressed you had that. I make a lot of pizzas, but I don't own a pizza stone. And right away, I was like, oh, sweet. He's really digging into this. I assumed it was a new purchase. I'm going to email Mama Koval and tell her to buy you one for Christmas. All right. That'll be great. She will. I'm also an adult. I could just go buy one. Mm-hmm. All right. Christmas is a ways <laughs> away. Uh, yeah, there's also that Amazon site. Sponsored, clearly. Amazon.com. Jesus, if we were sponsored by Amazon, we could stop begging for donations every week. <laughs> <laughs> we could retire. Then we'd have to like go down the morality. The podcast line, is over. Amazon gave us decide money. <laughs> whether or not we'd be okay being sponsored by Amazon. It'd be weird. They're building one Listen, here in Syracuse no. uh, warehouse, so that way I'll be able to get like their drone delivery in like two hours or whatever. Yeah, we've had that in Pittsburgh for a while. They they have a center here, and uh, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. So if Amazon wants to buy out this podcast, so sell out. Talk to me, Bezos. <laughs> He does some uh, pro bono work, right? Like he owns the Washington Post. He's got like a sliver of a heart, like 1% maybe. Anyway, so back to magic. Uh, I top forward a legacy challenge. The videos are up on YouTube. And I've decided to make, I don't know if any of the listeners are in the Japanese group, but I've started making Pioneer Breach Japanese foil against my best interest. Luckily yesterday, which was Monday, they did not ban anything out of Breach because I'm already at 52 out of my 75. Um, the deck's really cheap. Like so far I've gotten that far on like $275, most of which were tickets. So that's kind of cool. Um, and I'm doing like a weird theme where I'm trying to get everything with the new stamp because it's pioneer. You can get almost every card with the stamp that comes on the bottom now. And I just think it'd be a cool theme because like nobody else is doing that really. Bling it out how you want to bling it out. Yeah. Yeah, some someday when Paper Magic exists again, you'll be styling and profiling. A lot of people are selling keep... out right now. Like, a lot of my friends are just like, I don't know what I'm ever going to play again. I could have future bills due to COVID not going away. I think we're about to see a big uh, tanking in Paper Magic. Yeah, I, I would. I am also concerned about that. Um, I'm holding strong. Like, uh, I, I've always been of the opinion that, like, I will go down with the ship. Like I will own 40 black border dual lands when they are toilet paper. Like if magic goes under all TOs or like, I don't know, like I'll, I'll still have my magic cards at the end of time. So I I'm just holding on, but I do feel weird buying new ones now. Like I, I have a stack of, it, it's like a time capsule of what I've ordered since March. Like basically like the things that were coming in already ordered when COVID locked us down in March. And then the, the number of orders I've made since like you, you can just go through the stack. There's like some full art scavenging oozes and like full art containment priest. Then you get down to like the, the, uh, uh, Dorat, the perfect pet 
uh, Sprite Dragon alternate art, and then you could just go back through like the last three or four sets of just the cards I thought were worth purchasing. And, but they're all just sitting in a pile because obviously no one's playing ma- Magic. And Wizards uh, made an announcement last week, end of last week, that they're shutting down Paper Magic again due to COVID. And a lot of people are saying that they're not expecting it to come back until 2021, which is a very long time. And I don't know if New Year's Eve is all of a sudden going to make COVID any less scary. Hopefully it'll be gone by then, but like I'm not getting my hopes up. I'm worried about the big legacy event next year the 100k like at this point april 1st right yeah at this point i'm even skeptical of events that far out like i don't know if that's me being paranoid or me being realistic at this point like it's really hard to tell yeah that's also uh, obviously on my calendar and it's just like yeah hope we're there by then or i i hope society has adjusted to a functional way by then like that's a full 13 months from the american lockdown and like 16 to 18 months from like covid's first appearance in the world like i hope that america can get their shit together by then like just wear some masks let it burn off i don't know man i know you're both also on social media but like the stuff i'm seeing is people are getting drunk on boats and huge ragers i don't think it's gonna happen it's bad yeah uh when we get to i I guess since it came up i'll I'll do a little bit of my section i went on a uh, vacation last week Uh, i know i talked about it in the last episode i went to my uncle's lake house in south carolina and it's you know as safe as a vacation can be it's just this like house on a lake that nobody's really been in since quarantine and driving down i it's like a nine and a half hour drive for me. We stopped like three or four times. And every time we stopped, I had like hand sanitizer in my pocket and a mask on my face. And uh, all the stops are in the South, like from Pittsburgh to South Carolina, you go through West Virginia, regular Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Those are the, that's the line. And I would estimate 25% of people I saw in gas stations and uh, rest stops along the way had masks on, uh, one of the gas stations we stopped at had a sign on the door, like big sign that said occupancy 10. I, I opened the door. There was easily 35 people in there. Nobody seemed bothered. Uh, probably 10 of them had masks on. So like that was scary. And then like we got to the right, you made a mistake. The house. It was occupancy 10 masks, not people. Oh, OK. Yeah. That, then they hit their cap and they made people take them off after that. Yeah. So so then we got to the lake house and it was fine. At, but like my aunt and uncle were there, which I is fine. It's their house, but I wasn't really expecting them to be there the whole time. And my cousin, their daughter was there and like her boyfriend was coming over pretty regularly. And then one night they invited two other couples over and it then like it, I was there for the 4th of July and we went out on his boat to watch fireworks and we ended up tying up to someone else's boat, like a friend of his. And they had like six people on their boat and like the the dad on that boat just like walks up like hand out like ch- to shake my hand like to introduce himself. And I was like, whoa, buddy. And like my cousin and her boyfriend jumped over onto their boat to have a beer. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this isn't even like the worst thing that I've seen anyone doing. This is still all better than even going to a bar once. But it was still just like horrifying in a lot of ways. And uh, like... Other, th- other than those isolated 
incidents, it was like a lot of me floating in the water by myself or driving a jet ski by myself. But and it was a, a nice trip, but it, it was scary being out there. Like even even like the safest trip is still kind of stupid right now. I think about two weeks ago, I think it was right before we recorded the previous episode, I went to a small social gathering of like six people. Like and that was going to be my first like social outing. It's gonna be like outside. And then I got there and some of the things that I thought were going to be obvious to do were not um, being done. And it just was simultaneously like, man, it was nice to do something different. But at the same time, it's just like so nerve wracking. It's like, what? It, do- it doesn't seem that hard to do the things that we should be doing, but it's so easy for people not to be thinking about them somehow. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it it is crazy. And and just like the the break of routine. Like I I had been in the the quarantine routine for for months and then I went on this trip and came back and like my girlfriend and I who live together, we both were thrown off our routine and like she got really used to me being accessible at all times cuz like I wasn't busying myself the way I do at home and like I got back and I was like, okay, good. I can busy myself again. Like I'm exhausted from that vacation. And then uh, like we got back on Thursday and then like Sunday, we both kind of like <laughs> fell apart for a little bit. We didn't like fight or anything. It, it wasn't like that. But each of us had like a, oh God, we're back to this moment. That, that was tough to navigate. But we're back to this. <laughs> so what else have you been up to? Uh, so my my entertainment consumption, uh, Hamilton, the movie version now exists. It's phenomenal. Uh, Palm Springs is an excellent movie. Uh, it, it's a rom-com, but it's about two people stuck in a time loop. So it's like a sci-fi rom-com, and it's really good. I am watching it tonight. Uh, the, it's so good. I, I, if you watch like one thing that came out in the past two weeks, make it that, honestly. Uh, the Old Guard on Netflix was really good also. Uh, it's much better than your average Netflix movie. Uh, Warrior Nun on Netflix was not good. <laughs> not good at all. Uh, it was not It was not like critically good and also barely entertaining. So you can skip that one. And I've also started uh, Schitt's Creek. Uh, that's, that's my background noise while I'm playing Arena these days. And uh, I'm like most of the way through season one and it's pretty good so far. I think because of uh, the whole, like, people not getting the, what was the joke that you made that Tendrils is a haymaker? That you should start giving out, like, fake critical reviews. Like, oh, Warrior Nun was a must-see. Uh, in fact, I've watched it five times. Like, that sort of thing. Well, uh, that that humor is kind of burnt out on me because one of my friends who I interact with a lot it, it actually is a movie critic. He writes for Moviesleuth.com. And like we we are in touch on every social media platform, and it's funny because like most of my uh, Twitter follows and like mutuals or people I follow are either magic or politics, and then I just have this one uh, movie critic, and it's because I, only because we're friends in real life. So I frequently weigh in in uh, sarcastic ways on his movie reviews, or like I called him out recently for not having a definitive power ranking of the Bring It On movies. And like that, that's what I do. Uh, that's my, my peripheral awareness of movie critic culture. It's obviously like one, three, two, seven, six, thirteen. You missed a few. 
Do we just not watch them? I don't know. There's like 17 of those Rayman yeah. movies. Yeah, there's a it's lot. It's like the Land Before Time with pom poms. It, it basically is, but uh, movie Twitter, or excuse me, film Twitter, not to disappoint some other critic who was friends with my friend, waited immediately with his top five. <laughs> so uh, bring it on, movies. It, so like, clearly someone's been thinking about it. Um. Uh, Phil and I were talking about this before the show started. We're starting to have those conversations with our places of employment, us both of us being educators, about what's what next month is going to look like when school is supposed to reopen. And uh, I I work in uh, behavior support in special ed, uh, as as we've talked about before. And part my job part of my job is training people in crisis management. And that training includes a whole section of physical management. Like uh, if, if somebody comes at you, what do you do? And the way we train that traditionally is we get 20 people at a time in a room and I show them a, a skill and then they demonstrate it on me. They line up and then we do that for six hours. And then we do, I do that for another group the next day and the next day and the next day. So by the end of the first week of uh, pre-service before the kids show up, I have physically touched every member of our staff multiple times. And they have all touched me that many times too. And that's just like how this training works. And I I expressed to my admin that I don't think we could spread COVID faster if we tried. So uh, I, I have a I have a digital meeting later this week to with the other trainers to figure out what the fuck we're going to do about that. Even pre-COVID, that sounds... Uh, not super sanitary. Like I imagine you just come home, you get in the bathtub that's already full of hand sanitizer and you just relax. I mean, by, by touch, uh, I, I mean like they grab my wrist. I show them how to get out of your wrist being grabbed. Then I grab their wrist and they do it back. Do it's not have like we're like licking each other. We're not I don't know. You know, just nude crawling around in a 21 person pile. Mm, that sounds a little more fun. I mean, yeah, but I'm more likely to come home and shower after that. Also, some of my coworkers, nah. <laughs> All right, so your last note says that the Pro Tour Finals is two weeks away. Yeah, so the, the PT Final, which is the uh, last thing I qualified for from winning a Grand Prix seven and a half months ago. Uh, that That's what happened to Pro Magic. It just got smushed out, spread out. But uh, this is the last thing I'm currently queued for. And it's two weeks out. Uh, standard is not exciting right now. Uh, there's a lot of decks that appear viable, but really they all just lose to Teamer Reclamation. And Teamer Reclamation does not jive with me, Like, which is weird. Because if I saw that deck on paper, I'd be like, hell yeah, this is what I'm into. And it, it has a skill-intensive mirror, like the best deck having a skill-intensive mirror and being a blue deck, like that, that's right up my alley, but it is not working for me. So I, I'm I'm messing around with some other stuff, but hopefully we put up a reasonable finish. I, I believe the top 16 of this PT final get queued for like the uh, digital esports finale of the year, whatever it is. I saw that uh, Logan Nettles... Yeah won the super or the showcase this weekend with teamer wreck with four main deck storms wrath in it and like that was a big innovation within that deck because it wasn't standard at this point 
right. Uh, I, I can't talk about like specific 75s because I'm on a testing team full of serious people. But but yeah, Four Storms Wrath is very weird and it's very good if your expected meta is like this mono green aggro deck, which is getting a ton of steam among a lot of good players. So uh, basically killing Team Erect before they resolve the card Wilderness Reclamation is your only reasonable path to victory. And that's a four drop, by the way. So you, you just have to balls to the walls and hope they die and uh just shoving four wrath of gods into a deck that only loses to a perfect creature curve is a pretty good strategy so philly how's life been uh life's okay life's about the same magic has been rough uh probably the roughest stretch of legacy i've ever participated in uh so I'm down about a thousand play points in the last two or three weeks, um, and I'm finding it very difficult to win with brews and donation deck lists. Um, so for anyone who doesn't like follow my Twitch content, uh, essentially, I I say for the price of my league entry fee, you can pick what deck I play on stream, and I end up playing a lot of stuff that's like tier two and like slightly questionable, but like is still full of reasonable magic cards. And I am finding it incredibly difficult to 3-2 leagues with the decks that I've been playing. So I put up, like, this, like, really cool brewing contest where, like, I had people brew around lesser-played legacy cards, and they put together some amazing decks, and they are just getting crushed by, like, singular snowball-y cards like Oko and Dreadhorde Arcanist or they can't compete with all the combo that's on Magic Online right now. Uh, so I'm in process of figuring out what on earth to do about that. I've closed my legacy donation queue. Like, I don't know if I need to like increase the price that point that I'm offering leagues at to make up for my losses, because like, if this rate continues, I have to like buy ticks in order to continue doing what I'm doing which I have not spent a dime on Magic Online since I bought in, and I, like, regularly cash out a large amount of ticks. So, um, feeling very lost as a content creator, and, like, how do I keep doing what people want to see on my channel when it results in me, like, A, losing money effectively, and B, poor content creation because I can't win? I don't know. It's, it's a really weird spot to be in. Well, I can, uh, one option that I had some success in experiencing is widen up your, your format range. Like, uh, if the people want to see you like casting shifting Ceratops and legacy, they clearly don't care about seeing like premier level legacy getting played. They want to have fun with decks with Phil. So if you like do like a, like even Eric Landon introduced Modern Mondays like months ago, and he's like the legacy like reanimator goat. So like, just play other formats, uh, have fun there. Uh, like you can get sillier in like a pioneer than you can in a legacy and still hang. So worth worth exploring. I'll say this: I've been doing some vintage content, and I get less views on the vintage content, but the people seem to appreciate it more. So at first, you might not get the results you want, but it could pay off in the end. I understand, like, Pioneer or Modern aren't exactly legacy, but just 
don't know. It, it's weird because for the, I don't know, three question mark years that I've been streaming, like, I've always been able to, you know, average 3-2 or better with interesting quality legacy decks over time. Like, obviously, you know, you 5-0 sometimes, you 0-5 every once in a while, that sort of thing. Um, but, it's like, recently, it's been very hard to consistently do well. Um, and it's never been this way, even in any other warped format. Like, even when things like Death Rage Shaman and Ren and Six were, like, running over things and making things rough, like, the average deck wasn't that much worse than the best deck, and now I feel like that gulf has just widened a lot. Oh yeah, it's huge. Like, my, my experience in Legacy Leagues lately on Magic Online, it's like, basically people trying to go fast like the the number of like dredge and epic storm i play against is is not representative of any metagame you would experience in paper and i i understand like there is value in getting leagues done quickly so you can join the next league and playing strong decks like epic storm and dredge that can you know kill four opponents quickly get your profit get in the next league it makes a lot of sense to play those decks but it is harsh on people who want to be having you know trying something goofy i'll say this i had to completely restructure the epic storm over the last week i was testing for the showcase and i was getting hit by a lot of mind breaks first it was goblins and i was like okay goblins is a deck where i could understand mind break coming from like they can't really interact with me if i know that they have chalice i can beat chalice my deck's a little bit soft to mind break sure and then I saw a list going up to three mind break. And I even ran into a opponent who said that they were on four. And I was like, okay, I need to play a card to beat mind break here. And then I got mind break out of four color snow that also had a deafening silence. I answered the deafening silence, went off and then got mind break. I won't lie. I screamed at my computer, not necessarily at my opponent, but I was just like, what's going on? And then I was winning against sneak and show they activated Gristlebrand when I had already veiled and hit Mindbreak and Mindbreaked me. And I was just like, I have to do something. Like, this is not acceptable. So I made some adjustments. Uh, basically, I added Thoughtseize in, and my win rate started going back up. But I got down to, like, 54%. I can't remember the last time my win percentage was that low. Yeah. And now I'm, like, back up to, like, 62, 63, which is still under what I'm used to. But I couldn't deal with the 54% or whatever. It's just, like... The metagame's really hostile right now. As it should be. Like, every time I join a league, I'm like, should I play, like, seven hate cards for Epic Storm? Because that's what I'm going to play against in this league. Like, if I could just nuke my sideboard and guarantee, like, two or three match wins in a league, I would take that. When when the meta finds a, a pinpoint, you can, you know, smash it. That's just how metagames work, and Epic Storm has been smushing for several weeks now i think part of it is people like playing with new cards so that's why we're seeing a lot of goblins like muxus is everywhere but peer into the abyss too so uh when i look at my spreadsheet by far the deck i've played the most is rug delver which is our topic for today but the second most played deck is goblins within the last 14 days i faced rug delver 36 times and i play a lot of magic online and goblins was 24 in second that's incredibly surprising to me, considering how hard it is to get Muxus. Like, I, I don't know what its price point is right now. Uh, I'm going to Google it. Okay, you I'll, look it up. I'll look it up. But I, I, I was talking to someone recently who got theirs for 90 ticks. 
So uh, MTGO Traders currently, it's listed at 17.64, but they have zero. So I, I don't know if they're just waiting to restock at that buy price, then jump. Uh, but it, it may have settled down significantly from the 90 thing a week ago. I see ago. one listed at 73 from MTG RunnerSpot. All right, it's it's still real. Fan favorite or our one of our favorite fans, Marshall Arthur's message me asking if I could get him Allosaurus Riders, because Marshall, not not hip with the modal lingo, and whatnot. So I found him three Allosaurus Riders. He was willing to buy them at a hundred ticks because he didn't want to have to deal with like finding people and. Shepard, or right? is it Shepard Alistair or Shepard? Yes. Did I say Ryder? Yeah. Is Ryder the thing you pitch yes. in the Grizzle Brand deck? Yeah, that, that's the Grizzle Brand. Okay, card. my bad. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, yeah, that would have been way worse. That card was also a million on Moto at one point, but yeah, Alistair Shepard's. My apologies, but he's willing to pay 300 ticks for three of them, and that's just the, where we're at on Moto right now. Yep, Marshall is a baller. Yeah, I like there was a stretch of time where uh, when when I was like, I've slowed down because of my P- nonstop PT testing the last month and a half with my YouTube content. But like there was a time where it was like, Oko dropped. You need three of them. It's 90 ticks. Uh, Ren and six before that. You need three of them. It's 100 ticks. Uh, Uro, you need three of them. 60 ticks. And it was just like, oh, my God. Like Arena has just tanked the... Uh, the availability of standard. standard legal mythics because nobody's drafting. Someone was telling me that they expected Uro to be banned in modern. So they sold their four Uros over the past weekend. They got 240 ticks. Uh, it's a lot of, and what, what's the, what's the buyback in? Let, let's see, because that's the, that's the game, right? I thought about it too. 240 was the number I was told. All right. So uh, Uro is still in stock available for uh 60.42 so so that's the same number but like that that's the game it's every time a ban list is announced it's like well i could dump my euros and if i'm right i make a hundred dollars if i'm wrong i could lose one hundred dollars so uh i i just choose not to ride the speculation wave and just own the cards i own and it is what it is all right so phil why don't you start us off with the feedback all right, um, so we got a comment from Xander Forrell, who said, Hi, Eternal Glory Podcast. Just listened to episode 26. Really liked the end of the episode, mainly the advice to use neutral pronouns more often. I'm thinking of getting into content creation, so I'll keep this in mind. Um, in my opinion, these are the sorts of things that make content production worth it. So, like, I, I, I love making magic content but you know i'm also a teacher you know i do podcasts i do anime panels i do all sorts of stuff and whenever you get a comment that like like that that shows you that someone really cares and they really took something important away from what you're saying other than just like about the surface level magic stuff um i think that's really important and this made me very happy to read yeah i agree with that 100 percent uh if, like if this person makes you know one YouTube video and it's viewed by 100 people and one of those people is non-binary or like knows someone who is using they them neutral pronouns instead of calling every opponent he will be valuable to someone and that that'll just like cascade down the down the way 
uh, and the other 99 people who watch that video will hear this person using they, them, and uh, and hopefully some of them will understand why. So that just uh, that if that guy is the only person who listened to our last episode, I'm happy that we recorded it. It's also just really easy to say our opponent. That's something I like to do a lot. Yes, the the royal we. I, I do that too. Like I, I even when I'm not streaming, when I'm just uh, by myself on the couch, I still say like, ah, oh, the, they had a team, they had it. <laughs> like we need we need to draw the brainstorm here. Like I, I talk, like I, I'm not using the royal we though. That is something that the uh, that magic players do. I, I'm talking as if I have my chat behind me, even when I don't. Yeah, it's also very easy to get used to. You know, WTF is he doing? Uh, yeah, maybe that's correct. WTF are they doing? Hey, that's always going to be correct. Like it's it's so easy to make that tiny adjustment. Yep, easy, easy. All right, next thing. Uh, uh, Ken on Twitter uh, at Papa Deuce, lol, 37. I, lol, my emphasis, not his. Uh, he he tweeted uh, after our last episode where we talked about Bryant making pizzas, and he tweeted with a picture of a pizza he made himself. It was his first attempt at making pizza at age 35, and it looked pretty good. Uh, though it seems that our, our hosts here are split on mushrooms on pizza. Bryant and I are uh, no thank you, and Phil is yes please. Delicious. No, leave the fungus in I will the eat them if they're on there, but I prefer if they weren't. I will throw the whole pizza on the floor and make you cook me a new one. That's how I feel about onions. That's not actually true. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so the next one, uh, Anubis647 on Reddit. Uh, strong words on goblins and snoop combo. The Discord is currently mixed on the combo and traditional shell. We've had someone get multiple 5-0s with three Snoop, one Harbinger, one Kiki-Jiki. However, some jam Snoop early and found it doesn't mesh well with the rest of the deck. Not only that, Muxus is leading us to actually increase the Warchief count. So I guess the question is, how far do you lean into the combo? What does the deck look like? Uh, I'd be interested in a list from Bryant from an outside perspective to test it out and compare results. Because a lot of us were the same mindset before we started testing it. So... This comment has something interesting in it. Like, uh, Snoop and Muxus were uh, previewed around the same time. They came out in the same wave of products. And uh, Snoop has this, like, obvious combo potential. It has, like, some of the text of the card Future Sight on it as a two-drop creature, which is really exciting. But Muxus... Muxus is, like, show-and-tell. <laughs> Comparing, like, Snoop to, like, Burning Wish, I, I think. Like... You, you cast Muxus, that's a one-card combo. You just shit five permanents into play, they all trigger, and then you win. So uh, I, I'm willing to believe that just maxing out on the fastest possible Muxus all the time is, is probably a better way to build goblins than trying to make Snoop happen. After playing against it 24 times in the last 14 days, I'm going to agree with you. That said, I've had a number of opponents just like not realize how good it is because... There was once where my opponent could have done the uh, Palashikmons and Sling Gang combo, but with their Matron Trigger chose to get like Mog Fanatic. And I was like, what are they doing? If they get Palashikmons here, I'm just dead because they revealed all six. They had a bunch of triggers. Like I was just dead from 18 life and it didn't happen, uh, which is probably a good way of building your deck. 
that said, I think that people aren't building the Snoop combo deck right. If I mean, if you are trying to play the Snoop combo, if you're like running a bunch of War Chiefs and Ringleaders, because that just doesn't work well together. Like, if you want to play the long game, you have to build your deck to go that way, but you can't just like play a bunch of goblins that don't synergize well together. Uh, the Eternal Dirtles podcast had Eli Goings, uh, Goblin Lackey won on this week, and I just listened to their episode today. I don't, I don't want to rehash their content, uh, but if you're interested in like the Muxus versus Snoop sort of like arguments and why the deck is going the way that it is and why Snoop isn't as good as people initially thought it was going to be, that that is worth a, a listen, and I do highly recommend that episode. I found it very useful. So that's a perfect segue because Eli himself at Goblin Lackey on Twitter tweeted yesterday, I'm kind of glad they didn't ban Astrolabe. The deck only putting up results to discuss, or the only deck putting up results to discuss bannings is Rug Delver. And I strongly believe the best card in that deck is Dreadhorde Arcanist. Snow is almost non-existent lately. People are complaining about a format from two months ago. Then uh, we had a, that that spawned an interesting discussion with Legacy Twitter. Uh, Delver God Rich Cali tuned in to agree with the entire sentiment. Uh, Edgar Magaish, who is known for crushing people with Grixis Control and Snow Builds and slow big blue decks in Legacy, has been playing exclusively Delver lately, and he also agrees with that sentiment. Uh, and uh, I guess that asked the, the question is, Dreadhorde Arcanist hiding behind Arkham's Astrolabe as actually a busted card, hiding behind this just different card. Which leads us... I, I'm not going to answer that question. We're just going to float it out there. But that leads us into our topic this week, which is Rug Delver. Rug Delver crushed the uh, Legacy Challenge this past weekend. Showcase. Uh, I believe. Showcase? Is that what it was? Okay. Uh how, how many Rug Delver were in the top Four eight? out of the eight, and one, two, and three were all Rug Delver. Yeah, one, two, and three. First, second, third were all Rug Delver, and then there were more in the top 16. And so with this deck just uh, crushing the way it does, we're going to dedicate this whole episode into how to beat it. Okay. How do we attack this deck? Can you attack this deck? That's another question. We'll kind of lean into that over time, though, rather than answer it now. I think it's pretty important to look at how the deck is constructed if you're going to try to figure out how to beat it. So find its weak spot and then exploit it. That's always a great strategy. Right. So uh, I'll, I'll just do a quick intro. Uh, I don't want to assume everyone listening has played a ton of Legacy. Uh, so Rug Delver, uh, built around the card Delver of Secrets, it's built to get a, a cheap but durable but potent threat into play quickly. All of the threats in the deck cost one or two mana. And then it has tons of ways to disrupt your opponent and get that one threat over the finish line. So uh, cards like Daze, Wasteland, Spell Pierce, uh, Force of Will. like it, It's just keeping you off balance. And it has a, a full cantrip suite to find the tool you need to make sure that that little bug deals 20 points. And it, it's a, a lean, mean, damage-dealing machine. And... That's the plan. Like, they want to play small, and they want to make you dead before you really get anything going. All right. Uh, in terms of deck composition, here's kind of the big overview in terms of numbers. 
You're looking at between 10 and 12 different creatures. It's usually four Delvers, about two Hooting Mandrels, and four to six total copies of Dreadhorde Arcanist and Tarmogoyf, depending largely on pilot preference. You're looking at two or three Okos in most lit lists, 19 lands, four of which are wastes, about nine of which are fetches in a traditional build, uh, usually nine cantrips, and ten main deck counterspells, four force of wills, four days, two force of negations are stock. And then you have a whole bunch of flex slots where metagame and pilot preference comes in. So there's a whole bunch of options for the flex slots, but the slots themselves, there's about three of them. So uh, th this next list of cards, uh, you get to pick three, uh, some combination for a total of three. Uh, and popular choices are like Stifle, Spell Pierce, Spell Snare, Chain Lightning, Another Preordain, Brazen Borrower, True Name Nemesis, uh, that there kind There are thing. uncommon choices as well. And when you encounter one of them, you're going to go, why the fuck do they have that? Followed by, I can't possibly beat that. Main deck, main deck Clothis was one that just like clobbered me last week. I, I couldn't do anything against it in game one. Well, I think if you go a week back, people are still trying to beat snow or over the last week or so that like all the snow players switch decks. There was hardly any in the showcase. But one thing I'd like to point out is we're not going to go in super uh, in-depth detail, but like part of the reason why Rug Delver is so good is that with Modern Horizons and since then, Delver decks have been very efficient at beating silliness due to having six to seven copies of Forcible due to Force Negation. They're able to more effectively answer the few things that beat their Delver of Secrets. And having six, at least six hard counters really does change the way the games are played because you're able to tap out more often for your Dreadhorde on turn two and not have to fear dying. Uh, it's just like, Force of Negation really changed the way that Legacy is played. So that was a very Storm player perspective of that matchup, which, and all everything that Brian just said was true, but in the fair matchups, Dreadhorde Arcanist is real card advantage, which is something this deck has never had in the history of uh, legacy in the history of Rug Delver and Canadian Threshold before it, the ability to actually get ahead on cards uh, has not existed. So, like Brainstorm, Ponder, they give you card selection, but they don't give you more cards. Dreadhorde Arcanist, when it hits that Ponder on the flashback, that's a raw card into your hand, and it's repeatable. Like, uh, it, it it is a better card than like when this attacks draw a card, like. Dreadhorde Arcanist text is better than that text, and that text is insane in a deck that was already competing at Tier 1 for years without the ability to pull ahead on cards. So uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist fundamentally changed the fair matchups in a way that Force of Negation fundamentally changed the unfair I'm not ones. exaggerating when I say this. If, a, if I'm playing a fair deck like Death on Taxes and my opponent gets to attack with Dreadhorde Arcanist once... I believe my chances of winning that game are less than 20%. It's incredible how good that card is at spiraling games out of control, if not answered immediately. Yep, absolutely true. I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing the list that did well this weekend with less copies of Stifle, in my opinion. You just want more targets for your 
Dreadhorde Arcanist, so like Chain Lightning, in my opinion, and the extra Puridane are a lot better than something like Stifle in my eyes. Like, you can run Stifle. It's a choice you can do. It's just, I think that you want to maximize the potential of your Dreadhorde. Oh, yeah. I think the copy of Chain Lightning in particular is just, like, disgusting. Like, the the thing I'm most afraid of with most of the Dreadhorde Arcanist decks is them just having the Bolt. Because when they have the Bolt, so many things that you can do are just invalidated. Like, I played a mom. You bolted it. You now have the bolt in the graveyard for the next creature that I'm going to play. Or, aha, I have this six toughness creature. Bolt it, attack, bolt it. Uh, it's it's brutal. Chain lightning seems so strong to me. So I don't know if we actually mentioned this note, but part of it was that Rug Delver tends to have 12 unique cyborg cards that are all like haymaker sort of cards. And Dreadhorde really helps define them. So, for example, they play one Blazing Volley. Which is nice because you can flash it back with Dreadhorde. But you if you're running four ponder, four brainstorm, and a couple of preordains, you get to look at a lot of cards to find these powerful one-ups. So you can run one Clothis, one Null Rod, one Blazing Volley, you know, the entire suite. You get to run a lot of these. Like I saw a mind harness in someone's board from this weekend. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Takes me way back. But let's get into the sorry. I'm doing the same thing you are, so go for it. All right. Weaknesses of Rug Delver. It's a little bit threat light. So there's 12 to 15 ways generally to win the game. 15 is kind of on the high end, but those are if you choose to run the true names in your flex spots. Uh, True name is a great way of winning the mirror, but isn't as good in Legacy as it was a couple years ago. I don't even think true name is good in Legacy. Just full stop. Like, there was this time where True Name was one of the boogeymen of the format, and it was very difficult to answer. And now, like, tapping out for a three-mana card that isn't Oko levels of good just seems relatively questionable to me. Yeah, yeah. the, the Hooting Mandrels becoming stock in Rug Delver is the response to the last stock innovation of some number of True Name Memesis. Like like Phil said, there was a time where if you stick True Name in the Delver Mirror, it you just divide their life total by three. That's how long they have, and that's it. Uh, if they can't kill you through it or around it, they're dead. Uh, but a Hooting Mandrels uh, tramples right over it. You're now racing. Uh, they can't even hold it back to block. So uh, Hooting Mandrels kind of invalidated True Name Nemesis in the Delver Mirror, but uh, the Plague Engineer and etc. invalidated true name Nemesis in the format at large. So the the like the the 15 number, that's the, the top end of threats. That's assuming you have all 12 creatures. Uh like like we said, uh the deck plays 10 to 12 creatures and two or three Okos. The the number 15 is the full 12 creatures plus three Okos. That's like the max number of threats you can really expect out of a Delver deck. And so uh, if your deck has 15 threats, uh, that means one in four cards in your deck is a threat. So an average opening seven will have 1.75 threats in it. And only four of those cost one. So Rug Delver having a threat on turn one is not super likely. Uh, their their hands just go off when they do have them. But uh, it especially the way the decks are configured now. They're more likely to like ponder on turn one, slam a Dreadhorde Arcanist on turn two, but Delver is still in there. So the in opening hand that has one, maybe two threats in it, if you can answer those one or two threats before you're at you know six or lower life, 
you might stabilize. Then they have to work really hard to find a replacement threat. And that's not what they want to be doing. Uh, the whole deck is built to play small and play from ahead. So if they stick their threat, they can use their cantrips and soft counters to hold that lead and push their advantage until you run out of life points. If you can answer those early threats, then they have to use their cantrips to find another threat instead of finding answers to what you're doing. So then you can actually move forward with your game plan while they're spinning their wheels trying to get back in the game. I agree with all of that. Um, and just sort of slightly tangentially, the hands where they draw slightly more than the average amounts of creatures become very difficult to beat. Like, say they have turn one Delver and turn two Dreadhorde Arcanist. You use your removal spells to eat the Delver because, like, it's important for you to do so. And then you don't have the removal spell for the Dreadhorde Arcanist, and you end up in this really weird situation where you often can't afford to play around some soft permission because of, like, how threatening things are, or you have a hand with one removal spell and your opponent plays a turn one Delver and you're left in this position like, do I try to answer that or do I save this for the scarier threat later? Um, the, the hands where they have multiple threats are legitimately scary to play against. So to piggyback on Phil's point, I faced a number of opponents going back to the Luris era, even until this week, where they tried to do the Delverless Delver. And it's a, an idea you can do. Uh, like you'll like there was like a Grixis list that ran of one mind. I've recently run into a couple of the rug version that just runs essentially rug delver without delver in it. And what happens is like like Phil said, you lose that lightning bolt that would have targeted your delver and then said hits your dread horde. And knowing from a combo perspective that you don't have delver allows me to keep slower hands. And I think that's also another like. Because people will casually bring up, because like the discussion has happened before, if Delver Secrets should be banned, and they're like, oh, well, the Delverless Delver decks still are good. They're good, but they're not great. Like, they don't put up four in the top eight, and first, second, and third all being Rug Delver. Uh, I'm not saying that Delver should be banned. That's not the point of this point. It's just that, like, when you have that lightning rod to make it so your second threat lives, that's crucial. Yeah, and and uh dreadhorde arcanist we're, we're coming back there again uh, is is such a unique threat because if you plow the like delver of secrets you know what you're up against if it flips you're taking three a turn if it doesn't you're taking one a turn and it might flip next turn uh dreadhorde arcanist is as good as the spells in their hand and like that so it's just a totally different type of animal like even a tarmogoyf it's like uh, like when we're like Phil was talking about playing around soft permission, it's like uh, Tarmogoyf. It's like I can afford to take six or eight to make sure the Swords to Plowshares resolves. I'll hit my land drops. I'll get ahead of the soft permission. I'll have a backup fluster storm or whatever, and I'll make sure to answer this Tarmogoyf. Dreadhorde Arcanist. Like you don't get that luxury. Like if if they flashback a Ponder once, they've already replaced that card. They might have a backup threat at the ready and the counterspell now when previously they had one or the other. So you just sort of have to shove on Dreadhorde Arcanist and hope it works. And if it doesn't, you lose. So that's a a very different uh, power level than threats that the deck has played historically. But all of that said, every deck in the format has inevitability over Delver. If Delver, if your Delver opponent is drawing a card and passing the turn without reducing your life total they're losing slowly 
eventually, and everyone will pull ahead of that. Wasteland will stop mattering, days will stop mattering, spell pierce will stop mattering, and you can just handle your business later in the game. But uh, it is Delver's job to make the game end. Most. I think that's less true than it used to be, though. I think the deck has better endgame potential now, because the top-decked Oko and Dreadhorde Arcanist do a decent job of catch-up. Like, they're much better when leveraged ahead, but it's not like 2016 Rug Delver, where, like, you've made it to turn five, you have five lands in play, you know, you have something stupid on the board like a Mirror Crusader, and the Rug Delver player's just like, what do I do? How do I win from here? Yes, and uh, Arcanist and Oko are our card advantage, which is the two things that Rug Delver didn't have in 2018. So uh, a card like that, unopposed, even in the mid, can take over a mid game uh, in a way that a Tarmogoyf cannot. We didn't mention how Oko is another reason why True Name sort of fell off, because Brian mentioned that you just divide their life total by three. Oko completely changed that, being able to just plus one every turn to counter a true name nemesis just an observation i know that you can't target it and turn it into an elk but you've essentially elked it you can also just like race a true name with an oko if they're not attacking the oko like you maybe have to do a little bit of work in addition to just the elks but like you do a surprisingly good job of clocking with just an unchecked oko or like make an elk and then food from there like you end up winning that race so another way that you can go after the Delver decks is their mana base. From back when I used to play a lot of Delver, 18 was the standard. Most Delverless are actually running 19 now, but their mana base is still fairly fragile. Uh, it's six actual lands that tap for mana, nine fetch lands, and four wasteland. If you're a deck that can attack their mana and make them stumble, like if the, if they play a Troan Delver and you waste them and they don't hit another land, you will eventually come back. Uh, even if it buys you two turns before they hit their next land, that can be enough to change the swing of the game. And I know that it's negative tempo to Wasteland a Delver player on the draw, but because their deck has so few lands in it, and sometimes it might be the wrong color land, like it maybe you wasted their Volcanic and then they can't cast Dreadhorde on turn two, that can be enough to buy you time. And then there's obviously effects like Blood Moon or Back to Basics, things like that. I, could, I feel like we could do an entire podcast episode about like whether or not it's correct to wasteland Delver on turn one when you're on the draw. Um, Absolutely. So like yeah. maybe let's table that because like I could talk about that for a long time because I find that sort of thing like super super interesting. It's also like context dependent, right? Like if your hand has an Aether Vial, I don't know. Yeah. So we we're we're about to make this a four and a half hour episode if we keep talking about this, but. Uh, the, the larger point uh, we're making here is that uh, Delver only has three lands that make red and three lands that make green, and only and those are their six total lands. So if you, over a longer grindier game, like something that like a four-color loam or like Death and Taxes could get into, three Wastelands could take them off Tarmogoy for Lightning Bolt for the game. And that's that's something that you can have in mind at the beginning of the game. You don't know if that's if it's going to work out that way, you don't know if that's going to be, uh, you don't know if you're going to draw three wastelands, whatever. You have to adjust as you go. But it's something that uh, a good wasteland player will know is there, uh, rather than just uh, like firing off wasteland on the first land that appears. You can be planning like, 
you can have your tropical island. I want the volcanic islands. I'll get them when they show up. So that's like something you can plan for. All right, Phil, I think the next point uh, you should cover as you have the most experience with this card. Okay, so some context here. A, a lot of times before we start the podcast, we each separately take a look at like what we want to talk about for the week, and we, we write some show notes. And then we kind of comment on each other's, and then we, we go live and do it. So a comment that was left by, I'm assuming it was Brian, said, Chalice of the Void can effectively be a, a turn one win. And this is is technically correct. You know, the Delver deck is playing a whole bunch of one mana cantrips and one mana threats in terms of Delver, and there are a lot of times where you can stick a Chalice of Void on turn one, and like it is just lights out. But this is much less true than it used to be. And that's because Oko, at some point in the game, turns the chalice into an elk, and then it unlocks just an absolutely huge portion of that deck again. Uh, it, it used to be that in game one, Rug Delver had no answers to a resolved chalice of the void, and it was of crippling power level. Now, well, not just now, since Brazen Borrower, and to a lesser extent a Braid even, and now with Oko, Rug Delver has answers to Chalice of the Void in, main, in game one, so it's not the free roll that it used to be. And believe it or not, I actually frequently board out Chalices versus Rug Delver when I'm playing something like Red Prison, because it doesn't impact the board, and it's more important to be playing something like Red Elemental Blasts to answer Oko. So this kind of goes into the deck that I want to recommend later. I'm not going to say the deck name until later, but I think Chalice of the Void becomes more effective when you can also attack their mana base rather than something like Eldrazi or Mono Red Prison. Yeah, Chalice of the Void, uh, it's not it's not literally GG. Uh, it never was, and it's less so now than it was years ago. But if you have any sort of additional pressure, any sort of... Uh, if you're able to harass their mana base, if you can pair it with a Wastelander or a Schadenport or uh, just go like uh, Chalice of the Void into you know, some threat, like Goblin Rabble Master or whatever. They can't bolt it. They It'll take them three turns to hit their land drops for Oko, and they're way behind by then. So you need to back it up. But the the point is that the, the low curve of uh, Rug Delver is exploitable. Uh, that goes hand in hand with their low land count. And uh, cards like Chalice of the Void can really punish them if they kept a hand full of one drops with one land, which is a hand that Rug Delver keeps frequently. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I also think that I would say this: Chalice of the Void is relatively weak against Delver from a lot of the ancient tomb decks. There's a lot of openers that look like opponent leads on Delver, you lead on Chalice of the Void, and you have resolved this Chalice of the Void, but you still have to deal with the Delver while tapping your Ancient Tomb for mana, and you end up getting clocked for five a turn, and you die without your opponent playing more than, like, one more counterspell or something like that. Oh yeah, play, play draw uh, is always enormous uh, against Delver, and even more so against people trying to prison them out actively, instead of... Uh, 
interacting with them on a thread by thread. I'm going to blank on the name, and I had it on the tip of my tongue. But the giant that was printed in red, the front half, or the giant. back half of Stomp. What is it? Bone Crusher Giant. Bone, Bone Crusher. Crusher. Yeah, that's it. Like that was such a huge printing for Mono Red Person because that deck for so long really wanted a removal spell for Delver. And then they they would sit there and they're like, oh, great, my removal's four mana in Confluence or Chandra. And Stomp being two mana, like, you don't always want to cast it in a daze, but maybe if you go turn one Ancient term, Tomb, turn two Mountain, you're willing to take that two damage just to kill the Delver through days. Yeah, it's just a real fucking shame that it doesn't deal three damage to answer Dreadhorde Arcanist! <laughs> Language, Phil! Yep. <laughs> fucking whore mouth over there. So... You- Another thing that is great against Delver's spells, but bad against Dreadhorde Arcanist, is Thalia, Guardian of Thraven. Uh, and likewise, uh, other sphere effects, Thorn of Amethyst, Sphere of Resistance, and Trinisphere. Uh, those are ways to exploit Delver's low curve and low land cost as well. Uh, you can... Uh, a, a stuck Thalia, is, especially if it's backed with like Mother of Ruins or like Thorn of Amethyst, which is a non-creature permanent... That can really collapse uh, a Delver deck's whole plan. Because their plan is to cast one mana spells and lots of them. So if they cost two, that that frequently just you know, hamstrings them from the get-go. And, and then you can pull ahead with your spells. Uh, Phil, once again, thinks that is less true than it once was. And that probably is. Tell so us, Phil. I find that Thalia is not particularly good against the Dreadheart Arcanist decks. Unless you also have like a vial or mom, you need something else that is giving you an advantage while, like before the Thalia comes down. So the issue is that like a Dreadhorde Arcanist is a one three. So like it walls Thalia in combat. So you're not getting any damage via your Thalia. And you also can't wall the Arcanist with your threat. And B, the house of cards often collapses as soon as your opponent finds a removal spell because like, you play Thalia, your opponent plays Dreadheart Arcanist. You play New Creature, your opponent goes Bolt Thalia, attack Bolt Other Creature, and you didn't actually get all that much for playing your Thalia out. Now, if you can stick a Mom on one, and you have a defended Thalia, like, we we can start to talk, that looks much better. Or if you have, like, Vile on one, and then by the time your opponent has Lightning Bolt ready, like, you have Flicker Wisp off Vile, like, sure... But, like, between Dreadheart Arcanist and, like, Oko, um, I don't find that Thalia is particularly effective at stopping Rogue Delver to the extent that it used to be. Phil, I think I found why you're losing. And why is that? You're boarding out Chalice and Thalia against the Dreadhorde decks. Oh, I'm not boarding out Thalia versus (laughs) Delver. Like, absolutely not. Like, that stays in. But it's, it's not the ticket to freedom that it once was. So I was on a Google Hangouts call this weekend, and there was a Rug Delver pilot in the call, and we were all just talking through our lines, and the Rug Delver player was facing humans, and the humans player had double Mother of Runes, Thalia, and another threat in play, and the us as the Rug Delver player, we had a Dreadhorde and three lands. We thought we couldn't win, and sure enough, the uh, humans player valued their creatures very very differently than we did. They thought that the their most valuable creature was Thalia, but we thought it was the Mother of Runes. So we make a bad attack, they block Pro Red or whatever, and then we were able to kill the Mother of Runes with a tumble. And the entire game changed after that, because we thought we were going to be locked out, stuck on three lands, 
that could possibly be destroyed or stuck underneath double mother of runes, that sort of thing. So I, th I think it's also about how you evaluate what you have. Because from our side of the table, we thought we couldn't win. Yeah, uh, the uh, that's that's just part of legacy, no matter what we're talking about. Like, the, There's not really a legacy deck that plays itself. So I, I've seen plenty of people uh, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and vice versa based on the opponent uh, misvaluing uh, something like uh, I need to keep the Thalia at the expense of mom, that sort of decision, uh, or vice versa. Like It, it happens. Um, and and Rug Delver is a difficult deck to play and play against. So tons of tiny little decisions. Uh, there are there are plenty of games. Once again, Dreadhorde Arcanist and Oko, where they just go ham, and it doesn't seem like anyone's making any important decisions. But there are lots of games where uh, how you stack that ponder, how you put back that brainstorm, uh, how aggressively do you flip your Delver, or do you just let it ride for a turn? Uh, like all of that sort of thing uh, matters a lot. Uh, do you waste, like like we started to get into? Uh, very difficult decks to play and play against. Uh, so, on, are we ready for the next Let's do it. segment here? All right, so Delver relies on soft counters for the most part. They have their four force of will, but everything else is soft. Even force of negation, uh, I consider that a soft counter because it doesn't counter everything unconditionally. It counters non-creatures unconditionally. So there's a lot of ways to get through what they're trying to do. Uh, so decks that don't really care about counter spells, uh, I'm talking about like Dredge or like Hogak, uh, or decks that are built to punish counter spells, like Goblins, Elves, like those decks have Cavern of Souls in them, uh, Merfolk and Slivers. You may laugh at Slivers, but I have literally never beat Slivers with a Delver deck in my life. And I've played against it a number of times. There are some locals who are committed to the grind. And uh, you just can't, you just can't beat uh, Crystalline Sliver ever, and that that is a fact. Uh, it's never been done. So there are ways to punish uh, the soft counters. Uh, cards like Aether Vial really uh, get get around a lot of what they're doing too. Um, and, and on the other side. Uh, there's uh, combo decks that can clap back at the soft disruption. So like Storm has Discard and Veil of Summer. Show and Tell has its own counters or Besaju. Like it, it, if you do just like a little bit of work to get out of range of the, the spell pierce, it, it, like if you, one of the, the first things you learn as a new legacy player is how to play around days and you you go, your win percentage goes way up as a result. And it, it, that's like the fundamental lesson of how to exploit Delver's incredible spell days. It's just don't let them cast it. So uh, a lot of decks just fundamentally don't care about that sort of thing. And you can make plays that step. I'm going it. to uh, call back here a little bit, but this was pre COVID. I believe what is time we had an episode that had a large part about carpet of flowers, which is, Super important in this section because both Storm and Show and Tell variants can use Carpet of Flowers to beat those soft counters that Brian had mentioned. I don't want to reiterate everything we said in that episode, so if you're interested about Carpet of Flowers, go listen to that. But the card's great right now, as it was back then. Another way that you can look to, uh, or a weakness of Rug Delver, I should say, 
is that it only has so many removal spells. Like there's usually like four chain of vapor, or I'm sorry, <laughs> four chain of vapor, four lightning bolt and a chain lightning. There we go. I combined the two. Uh, so like five real removal spells. And then like sometimes there'll be like a brazen borrower or then like Oko is their other removal, which means that going wide is very good. So decks like elves, for example, have incredible Delver matchups, which also is part of the reason why like Rug Delver can't play Plague Engineer, which is a huge boon for elves decks. Like Grixis Delver would be a different story, but with the flavor of the month being Rug, not having to fear Plague Engineer is really big news, especially when you have Allosaur Shepherds in your deck. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I played Elves for a very long time, and I, my win rate against Delver of all varieties was very good. I've played Delver for a long time, and my win rate about against Elves is very low. So I, I've seen it from both sides. And uh, as always, uh, Legacy, both Dexter Skill Intensive, etc., and uh, how you configure your sideboard. Like, you could build Rug to beat Elves, but then you're bad against everything else. So that that's just metagame consideration. But stock lists of both, I'd rather be on the Elves side. And a trend that I've noticed recently is Brazen Borrowers on the decline. Like, it's still in some lists, so there's not a stock 75 for Rug Delver right now. But if you go through Goldfish, you're seeing less Brazen Borrowers than you would have a month ago. And... There's a couple of people like uh, Sylvia Wataro runs one main deck Chain of Vapor instead of the Brazen Borrower, but you usually see like one answer. And though that flex spot that, you know, is answer target permanent has been occupied by Oko at this point. Right. And my favorite way to attack Rug Delver is put basic lands in your deck. Like, I. Like they they want to stick a threat and beat you up with their soft counters. Like, like we we've mentioned playing around days a number of times. That usually just means playing a second land before you cast your one drop. And the reason wasteland is good in this deck is because it keeps you under days. It keeps you under spell pierce. Like that's what they're that's the real reason wasteland is there. You'll get games where like two wastelands make your opponent never cast a spell. It's a non-game GG high five all around. But other games where it's like it's just like a surgical tool to keep them locked under spell pierce and days, and basic lands don't play with that. Uh, you can just make your land drops get ahead of it, um, and uh, like we said earlier, uh, doing the math of like how many hits can I take from this Delver to make sure my removal spell resolves. Like if you're at twenty, you can go to fourteen to make sure that your Swords of Plowshares gets around a spell pierce. Uh, and and like you can make those sort of calculated decisions again. Dreadhorde Arcanist uh, is the is the forced play there because if you don't kill it immediately, it'll you, you'll never will because that first ponder it casts back is going to find a way to protect it. But uh, for for like their normal threats like the Delver, the Tarmogoyf, the Hooting Mandrills, you can do some math, make sure that your spell resolves rather than uh, answer it immediately. And basic lands let you keep All going right, right I've there. Got a tough so I agree with you saying that basic lands are good. However, what deck does that mean you should play? Because I think that's much harder because the snow decks are falling out of favor because presumably because they're not keeping up with Rug Delver because those pilots have switched to other decks. And something like Miracles has fallen a lot off the map because it's having trouble keeping up with Dreadhorde Dread and Oko. 
So, like, where does that leave us? So, I I agree. Uh, the question is, is tough in that I don't like the answer. And the answer is mid-range fair blue is not well positioned in legacy right now in general. Uh, like you want to be tempo or combo uh, like heads up though, uh, just like classic blue white miracles with lots of basic lands uh, and a, a respectable sideboard. Uh, I would rather play that uh, heads up against rug Delver all day, but that deck is not going to be show and tell and goblins and the Epic storm throughout the the tournament so it it's more a matter of uh getting squeezed for sideboard space uh i like i honestly i think any of those decks i'd be happy to play against rug delver like give me uh, like a grix's control with like Colagon's commands and plague engineers and shit give me uh, two color miracles give me four color snow i will play those against rug delver and be pretty stoked but i'll be real sad for every other deck in the metagame that, that's okay, my so position. So you, you think that there's the format is attacking from two very disparate sides, and you can build your deck to be one half of the equation, but then not be strong enough against the other half. Okay. Right. It's rock paper scissors, which is a a, a sign of a pretty healthy metagame. Honestly, I was just like, going to say that. Yeah, yeah. Like this isn't bad I, for the format. It's just bad for me as someone who always wants to cast monastery mentor, but the it's okay that you have a deck that is good against Storm, which is good against Control, which is good against the the original deck. Like I, I'm, I'm totally fine with that sort of dynamic existing. And then it makes predicting the metagame and building and sideboarding correctly a big part of the game. Like the work you do at home to know the format and select your sideboard and map it out correctly should weigh on your tournament results in a healthy metagame. And I think it I does. think that part of the issue in my opinion is that a lot of the snow pilots didn't adapt all the way to how Rogue Delver was trying to beat them. And it's a point that I was going to mention at the end of this section, but we can talk about it now. And that's Clothis is in the sideboard to beat all these snow decks. And I've even seen Sulfuric Vortex. So the, they try to resolve these permanents and the snow deck plays very few ways because of the reliance on Oko to be anything that isn't a creature or an artifact because everything now is all about turning things into elks. When you look at miracles, the deck that's fallen out of favor, you would see council's judgments and other ways of getting rid of permanents that weren't just, you know, turn it into an elk. And those have completely evaporated. So we did an episode just like this back during Ren and six. And I preached about how good celestial purge was. Honestly, I could see that card being great right now. It answers Clothis, it beats Dreadhorde. Um, and I don't want to just like keep on seeing the same cards over and over again, but like play Exile Effects. Like if you're going to lose to this god that just sits in play, just remove it. Uh, play Versatile Hate. Like I don't think Celestial Purge is the greatest card, but if you can also answer a Dreadhorde on turn two, it's probably fine. Um, I don't know. Like there's just ways of beating cards, but you have to adapt. And I think a lot of people aren't willing to adapt quickly. If you look through my uh, tournament finishes on MTG Goldfish, they have a pretty good archive of any time a deck list of mine is published, and you'll see a lot of Celestial Purges in my Miracle sideboards. Like, I was big on that card. I uh, I convinced uh, Harlan Fear and some other like 
legacy experts back in the day that the card was worth the slot in your white decks. And maybe it's just time to bring that back. So while we're on white cyborg cards, Brian, how do you feel about Rest in Peace? Oh, baby. I love it. Sign me up for a Rest in Peace. So uh, let's look at the the threats in Rug Delver. Uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist is a 1-3 trample with Rest in Peace in play with no other abilities. Uh, Hooting Mandrels is a 6-mana 4-4. Four, four. They only have 6 lands in their deck. Good luck with that one. Tarmogoyf is a 2-mana 0-1. Like, they, they have to win the game with Delver or Oko once you stick a Rest in Peace. And like that's that's a, a big ask for them. Like we talked about how they're already threat light and that knocks out two thirds of their threats right Question, away. Question is uh, I, I'm a big fan of Rest in Peace in Is Rest in Peace a creature or an artifact? It is neither of those things, hmm. Bryant. So how's Rogue Delver going to answer it? Uh, the naturalize effect. So the one in green. Yeah, so they will need something like uh, oh, what's it called? Yes, thank uh, you. Yeah, so so they would need a wilt. Uh, sometimes they play engineered explosives if they, but they have to invest four mana into that proposition. Um, sometimes they have. Uh, I got cinder vines. Like some sort of generic brown spell, like brazen borrower, could clear it for a turn. But in general, it's it's tough to remove. Return to nature. Uh, but that's going to be like one of their sideboard slots. I was going to say, so, like, most of uh, these good luck. cards that we're mentioning are already one of that they have to find without Dreadhorde. Right. Yeah, so uh, I actually have a, a funny story. I was playing Four Color Mentor at Eternal Weekend Paris against H.J. Kaiser, and he was on the uh, the Grixis Delver deck that had Mystic Sanctuary and uh, Painful Truths out of the sideboard to just go nuts. And in our game two, I played Rest in Peace, and he was like, oh, that's dirty. And he force willed it. And then on the next turn, I cast Blood Moon. And he was like, you brought in Rest in Peace and Blood Moon against Delver? I was like, fuck yeah, dude. Like, you can't beat either of these cards. And I got both. And he did end up winning the match. But I believe I won that game. Because, uh, like, these lock pieces, they're big. Yeah, and, and on that note, it's a little difficult to resolve something like a Blood Moon or a Back to Basics. Like, it's a three-mana card that's hard against Spellpierce and Days, and you still have, like, Force of Will and Force of Negation to deal with as well. But assuming that they resolve, they make your life a lot easier in winning the rest of the game. I will say this. I don't like Back to Basics as much, just because usually the Rugged Alver deck is boarding in some number of Pyroblast slash Red Elemental Blast. And Back to Basics is a juicy, juicy target for those. Yes, uh, Back to Basics, they both have their problems. Uh, back to Basics can be Red Blasted for one mana, and Blood Moon, they can still cast Dreadhorde Arcanist and Lightning. And then flashbacks so, the Lightning uh, Bolt. And neither, it's... <laughs> yeah, they can what, they can cast the Dreadhorde Arcanist out with their many mountains, and then start casting Ponders and Brainstorms from earlier in the game out of the graveyard. So neither of them is a hard lock, but they both cut off one of the the arms of this octopus and that's what's important like it you can be at a three-armed octopus in a fight if you can't that's your fault at that point. so i want to tell a really quick story i was playing magic online earlier this week my opponent taps a red and a green on turn two and you know you're expecting dread horde my opponent put young pyromancer in a play and i had just the biggest sigh of relief i was like oh, i remember 2017 
Like, it was so long ago. And it's just like how the threats in Rugdalver have scaled recently, where like you're relieved to see a young Pyromancer. Yeah, basically, like like that feeling, that's huge in the, the every Delver matchup. Like anytime I'm on the draw against Delver and their turn one play is Ponder and not Delver, I just feel my percentage swing by like 25 points. Just like, oh, good. <laughs> the pressure's off. Like, I, I don't care what happens after this. I got time to breathe. So I, I I always appreciate my Delver opponents not casting extremely aggressive things on curve. But one of the biggest things is, like Blood Moon, it's not blue. And some other non-blue things that you can run. Gurmag Angler. Being a 5-5 is pretty huge. Granted, it could become an elk, but everything dies to Doomblade, right? Like, that's the joke. I can't think of the left. Gurmag Angler doesn't. <laughs> that is technically true. Got him. I can't think of the last time I saw a Gurmag Angler in play. Like, I don't think I have seen a Gurmag Angler in play in this calendar year. That might be true. I mean, I've run into some uh, Death Shadowless with it still, but it's slim to none. That said, I do think it could be good against Rugdelver. Yeah, so like the reason here is that uh, it's not blue, so they can't red blast it cleanly. It has more than three toughness, so they can't bolt it easily. And it doesn't get spell pierced, doesn't get spell snared. Like uh, if, if you can produce threats that dodge some number of that spread, you're going to be pretty happy. So like Gurmag Angler is one of them. Uh, Monastery Mentor gets bolted, but it doesn't get pierced or snared. It doesn't get red blasted. And if you can even make a monk in response to the bolt. Uh, you got some value. Uh, Tarmogoyf, the classic uh, chest piece in the Rugdelver mirror. Uh, that might not be true anymore, Dreadhorde Arcanist. But back in the day, uh, Rugdelver played like three or four submerges in the sideboard just to win the Tarmogoyf Wars. So Tarmogoyf uh, dodges most of those things. Um, uh, Thalia threat. We talked about Thalia a little bit, and uh, she gets bolted and snared, but she doesn't get pierced or blasted. And then we got like the big boom booms, like Hogak and Merit Lage, like those things. Uh, those are serious threats that a lot of Delver decks are going to have to be digging hard to answer, and they don't get much time. Well, on top of that, they've been cutting those answers. We mentioned how they're skimming on Brazen Borrower, and their answers are now right? Oko. You have a pretty small window to use that card. Being Oko. We're no longer in that time period where Delver is doing things like playing main deck or sideboard Caracas to effectively deal with things like Merit Lodge and Hogak. Um, so I, I think that's a very good angle of attack. Yeah, even just recently during the, the Luris era, Delver decks had two Caracas in the main deck in a lot, a lot of cases, and that technology is just gone. So we did mention that Chalice of the Void is a card that can possibly beat Delver. And a, I'm going to jump a little bit ahead here. We can merge these two sections. Is I think Four Color Loam is a great deck to beat Rug Delver. So you have Chalice of the Void. You have your Wastelands to attack through mana base. You have your own Okos. But the big thing to me is neither of the Reliquary. So you're able to search up those wastelands to continually protect that Chalice of the Void and keep them off Oko. It's a huge creature that doesn't die to Bolt or Snare. Uh, it has a lot of things going on for it. It doesn't get hit by a force of uh, negation. 
I just think that if I was trying to beat Rugdalver and I didn't want to play Storm, I'd be sleeving up for Color Loam. I think it's just really well positioned against Rugdalver. I think there's... Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think it's very difficult to build four color loam right now, correctly. There's a lot of tension in the deck building. Uh, like, take Punishing Fire, for example. So Punishing Fire is great at killing small threats like Delver, but it doesn't kill Elks, and it doesn't kill Dreadhorde Arcanist, and it doesn't kill Tarmogoyf. So maybe the red version isn't particularly well suited to deal with everything that's going on right now and the red version historically is how you grind through the fair stuff and you used to have punishing fires to whittle down planeswalkers but now like oko has too much loyalty and like pluses for enough that's not realistic to do so so that puts you into the route of playing the blue versions that include your own okos and then you end up a little bit softer into early game threats because you don't have those punishing fires there. And in addition to just worrying about Delver, you have to worry about all the combo decks that are running around, which on non-chalice hands are often tricky and reliant on your sideboard cards. I don't know, Phil. Like, four color's pretty tough for me, and I beat most non-blue decks. Like, I do agree that if you're going to play four color, you shouldn't run red. Like, Punishing Fire is just not a good card right now. But what Brian talked about, I believe it was two episodes ago, about not liking Uro versus uh, Delver decks. I think Uro is actually very good in four color loam at beating Delver. Because it's, four color loam is a deck where traditionally Pyroblast doesn't get boarded in. You can board it in but know that it doesn't interact with that Chalice of the Void that's going to come down. And if Chalice resolves, that Pyroblast is dead. So you have a way of protecting your Oko and Uro from Pyroblast anyway. So, like, are you going to board in Pyroblast that doesn't interact with, I don't know, 85% of the deck? So, like, I think Uro becomes a lot better, and so does Oko. Oh, God, Uro is yeah, it, so I agree with good that. in those matchups. Like, it's disgusting. So that like this is just like I really think like I was looking at the showcase results and I like if going in I thought Matt Luke was going to have a huge weekend he finished top sixteen, but that's like the difference between top sixteen and top eight and for people that don't play a lot of tournament magic is like a lucky break here or there, and I think that's something that gets lost with motor results is like sometimes somebody just top decked and that's the difference between seventh place and thirteenth and. That doesn't mean that one deck is necessarily worse than the other. It just means that, like, sometimes variants didn't hit. Like, you're playing Blackjack and you just didn't... You br- I don't know. I'm going to stop talking, but you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. I I, I will agree with that. Like, from experience, uh, in, in the GP I won, uh, there, there was a turn where my opponent beautifully played, set up so they could Thought Not Seer, the Cryptic Command, out of my hand, and then cast Mycosynth Lattice to kill me. And my one card in hand was Cryptic Command, and they knew that. And I counter draw on the Thought Not Seer, and I drew Metallic Rebuke. <laughs> just happened to be the top card of my deck, and I rebuked the Microsynth Lattice and won easily. And like, if that just didn't happen, if I hit my like, you know, eighty nine percent or whatever to not draw Metallic Rebuke, like I I hit the tenor, I missed on the ninety, like I that 
that's the difference between like the path to a, a GP top eight versus, you know, not making day two. And, and like those little breaks happen all the time. Uh, in the Invitational I won, I, I was playing uh, against some like zoo kind of deck with death and taxes. And they answered uh, my uh, Restoration Angel with like, it, it ate a creature, then ate a lightning bolt. And then I was hellbent against their giant board. And I just ripped off the top another Restoration Angel and blew them out in combat on the following turn. That, there were like three left in the deck. Any other draw, I lose. So like that, that like a top 16 is, is really good. And uh, like a lot of the time, a better player ends up in top 16 and a worse player ends up in top eight. And that's just how magic breaks sometimes. Another deck I'd be looking to play, and I, I guess we're just going to delve into our last section, but... I really think Turbo Depth specifically, not the mid-range steps, but Turbo is a deck that I think is pretty well positioned. We mentioned how there's very few answers to Merit Lodge right now because, because like they sometimes have one Brazen Borrower. But the typical response is like, well, they could have Stifle or Wasteland. Stifle isn't the most popular flex spot. Like It's something some players run. But for Wasteland, your deck plays four copies of main deck Pything Needle. And you have discard spells. And there's ways of beating... Uh, wasteland with like thespian stage tricks and getting a stage and a hex mage in play like wasteland isn't the most difficult card to beat and they're usually just stone cold dead as long as you play it correctly uh and if you do play well you do it on their end step so they can't oko uh because if their most common answer is oko just don't play into their out right i've been on the wrong side of turbo depths a decent amount of times recently uh, i think it was sunday I was playing with D&T, I think, and game one, I interacted with my opponent, they made a turn two Marilage anyway. Game two, I interacted with my opponent, they made a turn two Marilage anyway. It was just like, holy crap. So, like, if you don't, like, even if you interact sometimes, they're, they're still able to beat you. And, like, when you're playing a deck that can't interact very often or very well with the permanence that gets cranked up to 11. So a card that uh, Turbo Depths plays, and I mean, it's usually like our one or two of in the mid-range decks play four. I really like Elvish Reclaimer right now. It's a 3-4 creature, which means that it lives through a lightning bolt and a block Dreadhorde. I don't know the, the exact home in which I'd want to play this card, but Elvish Reclaimer is super good. We, I was talking with somebody about how Rugdelver could possibly play it as their uh, fifth or eighth creature threats, and that's because you get you would get wastelands. You could even run a. I mean, technically, this is a way that you could beat the depth decks if they ever got huge. But you could run like a boarded Caracas and a boarded Bajuka Bog. Sylvia Wataro, who just like wins every single challenge with Rugdelver, plays a cyborg Bajuka Bog with no way of getting it, which is pretty crazy. But like, it works for them. Uh, it just seems like Elvish Reclaimer is poised to eventually make a huge breakout. Like, people were playing, um, what's the name of The Snake. Ice Bank Koala? No, the 2 1. Hex Drinker. The level up. Yeah, Hex Drinker. They were playing that during the Ren era, and then it just disappeared. And I think Elvish Reclaimer could be played very similarly. I think it's actually better than Hex Drinker in a lot of matchups. It just doesn't eventually become a mini progenitus. So Newton Hang, um, hello Newton on Twitter, has had a lot of success with uh, Elvish Reclaimer in just like a 
can't say a traditional elves deck list, but in an elves deck list, um, the card is very, very powerful and probably deserves to be seeing more play than it is right now. Um, just totally agree. Newton doesn't listen to us. He might have been a guest uh, for an intro of the Eternal Glory podcast, and he's like, I don't know what that is. And I was like, Newton, come on, man. Uh, Harsh. I've interacted with Newton a number of times. He's been super helpful, like typing up sideboard guides and stuff for me. I, I played one of his lists on my YouTube channel, so good dude, even if he doesn't He's a super nice opponent. He'll, he's always super pleasant, even when he gets like top decked. Or, I've had plenty of moto conversations with him. He's a really great guy. He's by far one of my favorite opponents. I did a, a stream with for him sure. recently. If you've, uh, yeah, I don't think he does much of any actual content production, um, but he had some crazy next level plays um, that like really impressed me. All right. So, what other decks do we recommend for beating the Rugdelver Menace? So uh, I talked about this a little bit already, but like basic heavy control decks. I, I would like to be that sort of style against Delver. Um, uh, at the tail end of the uh, the before the companion nerf, uh, there is a video on my YouTube, uh, Bosch and Roll on YouTube, that I just built a Yorion deck and decided I wasn't going to lose to Delver. And I just had eight Strixes, four Supreme Verdicts, uh, Abrupt Decays, Swords to Plowshares. And in that league, I went 3-0 and against Delver. And you can do that if you want to. The tools are there. It's just uh, if you're going to respect the, the metagame at large. At the time, Luris Delver was... <laughs> you could expect to play against it three or four times in a league. So that was a safe thing to do. Not sure the metagame's there. But if you want to beat Delver, you can do it with mid-range blue cards. I think the metagame's there, Brian. At least according... Like, I know my spreadsheet isn't the end-all be-all, but I've been playing a lot. And... 33 times I've faced Rugdelver in the last 14 days. And I'm looking at my leagues, and a lot of them are yeah, just triple I mean, Rugdelver. Yeah, if if these Delver decks are showing up, uh, it, especially if they're driving the, the combo decks down a little bit, uh, being this these basic heavy control decks is a nice place to be. I think that pre-boarding for Rugdelver and then having, you know, not... Literally, but close to a 15-card sideboard for combo matchups is not unreasonable right now. That's pretty much what I did with my Yorian builds at the tail end of Yorian's playability. And I, I like where that is uh, uh, if you're going to be playing a Miracle-style deck these We days. covered how Elves beats... Uh, going wide, essentially, beats Rugdelver. So Elves, Goblins, Slivers, pretty much humans too. Just go wide. Um, play tight, go wide. Like there's no dread horde in any of these. Not dread horde. Plague engineer in any of these lists right now. So that's such a huge advantage for these creature decks to not have to consider plague engineer. It's a card where a year ago people wanted it banned, and now plague engineer is nowhere to be found. I think part of that's due to true name dying off. Yeah, I, I mean, once again, that's the the healthy give and take of a metagame. Um, at some point. Somebody's gonna splash four color Delver again. I won a trial uh, in like uh, late summer of 2019 for Eternal Weekend with four color Delver. With uh, it was Rug Delver splashing Gurmag Angler and uh, Plague Engineer out of the sideboard, a Lawrence Harmon special, and that could be the next step. Uh, if if decks like Elves Goblins are really out there, 
four-color Delver could be the next permutation. This is the metagame at work. I sort of wonder about some of those decks. Like, I've played a lot of fair creature decks recently, and, like, the Dreadhorde Arcanus plus Lightning Bolt thing has just been tearing me apart. So of the tribal decks that we talked about today, I like Goblins the best. Um, Something Eli was talking about um, was that so many of your creatures are not worth elking, and it's frustrating for the opponents. So, like, you play these creatures that have ETB triggers or these creatures that otherwise gain value or size when they are elked, and that's a weird way to fight back versus the Oko. Uh, So a classic example is, like, you have a Goblin Lackey on board. If it's elked, it has increased in its size by two, and it's still a threat. A different sort of threat, but, like, very much still a threat. Yeah, we've brought that up. We've had this conversation in various uh, flavors the last couple weeks, and... uh, like, overloading Oko is one of the best ways to play against it. Even just earlier tonight, where it's like, it, you can't resolve Chalice of the Void, then, like, rest on your laurels and be like, ah, this will win me the game now. Like, you have to have more things. Like, if you have, like, Chalice of the Void followed by Creature, Creature, then they turn your Chalice of the Void into a creature. Like, they've taken a million, and all they've done is answer Chalice of the Void. So, uh, overloading Oko with permanence like you said that get better when they're elks uh is a certain certainly a way to attack that and goblins and elves both do that i miss the days where pre-eldrazi where the chalice decks just took 45 years to beat you and you could eventually draw your like one of out and then beat them it was glorious yeah thought not seer Uh uh-uh yeah that the the chalice of the void like turn one chalice turn two thought not seer like on the play I, I think it's still one of the best starts in Legacy. Like, that deck, I, I don't love. I would never play it in a tournament, but uh, that is certainly one of the scariest things that you can still face down in Legacy. All right, so do we have any last thoughts on beating Rugdelver or Rugdelver in general? I recommend also playing Rugdelver. That's a, that's a contentious thing that hasn't come up this episode yet, uh, but that deck is really... Delver is, like, very frequently one of the best strategies in Legacy, if not, like, always one of the best. It's been one of the best strategies since 2011. Yeah. And right now, it feels like we have a very good Delver deck. Like, probably problematically good Delver deck. Uh, You know, I don't want to, like, go into band discussions or anything right now, but, like, the Delver decks are so incredibly good at punishing so many different archetypes that I think if you want to be winning tournaments and you have the ability to very easily switch decks and you're not a specialist or anything, like playing Rug is a great place to just be. Yep, I would agree with that. Uh, also, I feel like playing Rug is rewarding. Uh, that might be might elicit some eye rolls from the crowd who are sick of playing against Rug, but the Delver Mirror historically has been pretty close to chess. Like the the better player will win a Delver Mirror a lot of the time, and the current build I I don't think has any like egregious mirror breakers like Deathrite Shaman for a while or like Ren and Six for a while. Those were things that are like oh you have that and I don't I'm fucking dead great. Like, that was not the most fun. But, uh, like, Dreadhorde Arcanist is a two-drop creature that dies to bolt. Like, 
there should be some interplay on that axis. Uh, and like, uh, I think the rug mirror right now is probably a lot of fun if you're into that sort of magic. All right. Thank you all for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed. Keep on slamming some legacy games and hopefully you find a good way to deal with one colorless, one red creatures. 